Good morning, y'all. Happy Saturday. Thanks for tuning in to Turn to Your Teacher and Listen. My name is Liz. I am your resident pre-service teacher and humble host. Sorry I skipped a week without any kind of notice, but this is going to be episode four, I believe. Um, So four weeks of podcasting. Yay! Happy me. Um, I have recently learned that my university will be going to an alternative delivery platform method, which basically means that classes, in-person classes are canceled to kind of um, cut down on gatherings in um, consolidated areas. So that means that I'm going to be using Zoom, a digital like video conference thing for all of my classes for the next two weeks. Um, I will either be staying in my apartment, basically confined with my cat, Aladdin, or I will be going home to my room, basically confined with my cat, Aladdin, for two weeks or until school opens back up. Um, I'm only going to go home if the school that I'm observing at cancels their, like, instruction as well, or if they say, no, we don't want university observers because we can't track where they've been, we don't want them potentially infecting our kids, we don't want our kids potentially infecting them. So if they decide to cancel our observation, then I will be going home, um, back to Florida until at least April 6th, um... So find me on social media, hit me up. I'll be answering DMs and comments if you have any. Um, And I am by no means a healthcare professional, but listen to the WHO and listen to the CDC. Wash your hands. Don't buy up 80 bottles or bags or containers of Clorox wipes. Save some for your neighbors because if you wash your hands but your next door neighbor doesn't and you interact with your neighbor, then it doesn't do you any good if you are clean and they aren't. So let's make sure that everyone is washing their hands at least 20 seconds with warm, soapy water. Um, It was either the WHO or the CDC put out a how to properly wash your hands in like seven or eight steps, if I remember right. And if you're not doing that every time you wash your hands, whether there's a worldwide pandemic or not, or epidemic, whatever they're calling it, then you are not helping anyone around you. And we need to make sure that we are taking care of our elders and our infants. So if you have someone who is at a increased risk, be sure that they have all the precautions necessary. Okay, getting off my soapbox, we're gonna start talking about my lesson because I taught my lesson before spring break. Hi, hello, I'm so excited to tell you all about the lesson that I taught to my fifth grade class that I was observing in. What I got to teach was a social studies lesson but I led with literacy. And what that means is I brought literacy pieces in for my students to um, twirl with. So talk, write, T-W-I, investigate, R, read, L, listen. Um, So that's what twirl means. And um, I brought in or had to use uh, studies weekly. And Studies Weekly makes hard topics in social studies digestible for young minds. And I think 
a lot of the schools in my area right now are using it. I never used it in uh, lower grades. I used like orange or yellow or red textbooks and that was pretty much it. But the Studies Weekly that I taught broke down Lewis and Clark's uh, Louisiana Purchase Expedition and the Corps of Discovery in Sacagawea and uh, her child. And my kids seemed to really enjoy it. And we didn't quite get to the entire lesson. My observer was a little bit late um, by about 10 minutes. So that cut into my lesson time and kind of threw me off. But uh, got to be flexible, just like they always preach at us. So what we did was we cut the end lesson and I made sure that they got the actual instruction and understood what we were talking about and had some meaningful conversations with the kids. Um, I had a group of five students and they were everyone from tier three to tier one. And I had some more meaningful conversations with my tier three than I did my tier one. Um, I tried to mix it all up, but I needed to make sure that my tier three got it. And I... I'm talking to my professors about how to get better at making sure that they actually understand it and aren't just cheating the system. And cheating is the wrong word, but at this point they know how to, in fifth grade, they know how to like almost pander to make sure that like they don't get questioned further than they want to be. So instead of like asking them closed questions, like yes, no questions, I need to work on asking open-ended questions like, why do you think that this happened? Why do you think that they thought the child was good luck? Why, um, really questions that they need to answer with at least a sentence or two. Um, and my writing assignment was going to get into that, but like I said, I didn't have time to do the activity. Um, but I actually got thrown for a loop and none of my professors really, like, had a good response and good is opinionated but one of my kids who is a ELL isn't the right phrase for him because he is no longer learning the English language he is fluent in both English and Spanish but he is an English second language student so Spanish is his first language and he told me that a word in the article that we were reading that was provided by Studies Weekly was a bad word in Spanish. And now Studies Weekly is saying it how it is. They're telling the students, like, this is the name of Sacagawea's child. This is the nickname that Lewis and Clark gave him. The child's name is uh, Jean something Baptiste. Um, Jean Baptiste Charbonneau. And I don't speak French, so please don't come for me. Um, I never took French. I took sign language as a second language. Um, so I didn't even take any kind of Spanish or romance language to have any idea. But he told me that the nickname that Lewis and Clark gave Sacagawea's son was a bad word in Spanish. The name in question is Pompey or Pomp. And after I got home, I did some Googling and I couldn't find anything. But he raised his hand in the middle of my lesson and said, did you know that Pompey is a bad word in Spanish? My brain shut down. I think I was going to pass out. I looked at the person recording my lesson and she just had the biggest like 
dinner plate sized eyes. My observer was so confused. They looked at each other and were like, what's the word? We don't know. They're mouthing these to each other. And I swear time stopped. But I just looked at him and I said, oh, if it's a bad word, then we're not going to talk about that in school. We don't use those words here. And he said, okay. And then we went on with the lesson. And I pushed play and let the Studies Weekly program read the next paragraph to the kids and let them take their jot notes on it. But I was panicked. <laughs> I came to school in my college classes the next day and asked my professors, what do I do in this situation? What do I do? And all of them said, well, it depends on the kid. And if you know that it's a bad word, then maybe tell them, okay, I understand that that's a bad word, but we're not going to use that here. And it was actually really cool to be given, like, I did the right thing. Like, I gave the correct answer in response to that statement, which was really scary for me because it was my first lesson being taught to fifth graders. Um, so I apparently did the right thing. I didn't feel like I did the right thing, but I, uh, according to my professors, I did the right thing. So I'm going to be looking into a more concrete, like, redirect um, method for dodging those hard topics without just completely ignoring them. Um, when I was taking classroom management, our professor told us that if someone says a bad word, you can't say, we don't say that. You can't say, you're not supposed to say that. You can't say anything like that. It has to be, we don't say that here. We don't say that in school because if their parents say it at home and if their parents let them say it at home, then you can be undermining parenting. And according to everyone that I've spoken with, parents are a lot harder to deal with than students usually. They, they'll stick to their guns, they have opinions of their own, um, and they have the ability to back them up. So if, a, if you tell a kid that they're not allowed to say that word or that phrase in school, like if, if you tell a kid that they're not allowed to say stupid, well, stupid may be what mom calls dad, dad calls mom, dad calls the dog that he doesn't like. And so that may just be part of that child's vocabulary. And hearing that at home makes the child think that it's normal to call people or things that he's mad at stupid. And then that will grow into other kids getting used to it and thinking that it's cool and saying it. So in order to appease parents, follow your school rules and your classroom rules, you can say, we don't say that here. Meaning in this classroom, in this school, we don't use that word. And that goes along with treat people the way you want to be treated because some kids aren't going to have the best history with treatment. They're not going to have a loving home that they go to. Um, and this is really hard to talk about, but they, if, if you say treat people the way that they want to be treated or treat people the way that you want to be treated, the golden rule, do unto thy neighbor as you would do unto whatever yourself, they may not be treated well. They may not expect themselves to be treated well. So therefore you just gave them a free pass to treat someone else badly. So if you say, we don't do that here, we don't treat people like that here, then that kind of flips it on its head and there's no real way around it. Um, and that goes not just to cover you 
as a like the teacher or the adult or the professional in the room but that and I hate to say it but it covers you like liability wise because if someone is bullying someone off of school property yes they are your student yes they are like your kid and that's obviously in quotation marks but if you do your best to teach them that we don't treat people that way here and then hopefully that can spill over into we don't treat people like that period we need to treat people better than that um so that's really kind of like what my brain has been doing literally for the past week is just trying to figure out how I could handle the situation where my kid tells me oh that's a bad word in Spanish and he's the only one in the room who's fluent in Spanish so no one can argue with him myself my observer and my fellow um, education student are flabbergasted and we just don't say that here thank you for bringing that to my attention we just don't say that here again okay and that's really all that I could do and that's what basically my professors told me to do um but beyond that the lesson went pretty well um I'm basically using this episode as a self-reflection um I need to work on time management I was trying to make a hour-long lesson fit into a 30-minute time slot um because we have to fill up four pages worth of lesson plans for one 30-minute lesson and that just didn't work um I had a long passage to read and it took longer than anticipated because I was having good conversations with my kids between the chunks. So maybe I need to set the precedent of only talking to one student between each chunk in the text. There were five students, there were five chunks. I should have started with one and ended with the last one. Um, They had to take jot notes. They took their jot notes based on an annotation guide that I gave them. Um, that I actually got from one of my professors, um, Dr. E, where they did a pound symbol or a number sign or a hashtag, and they used that to symbolize connections to a previous knowledge. So, like, one of my kids said, one way to get across the country is to just walk up the highway in our town. Just walk all the way from where we are all the way up to New York and just follow that highway. And... I said, okay, so what would we use to annotate that? And he said, the pound symbol. And I was like, yes, you didn't call it a hashtag. Um, But he used his previous knowledge and his connections to previous knowledge to help deepen his understanding. Um, The next symbol was a question mark. And obviously that means I don't understand this. Even with the context clues, I don't understand this. I still have a question. The next one was an exclamation point. So, like, when it says in the passage that Sacagawea was sold to a French trapper to be one of his wives, that's new knowledge even for me when I was reading the information for the first time. So, I put an exclamation point next to that. Um, And then the last thing that they had to underline was, or the last thing that they had to annotate was underlining new words or new phrases that they hadn't heard before. So, what I just said was a French trapper was who Sacagawea was sold to. Um, and a lot of the kids, they know what hunters are because we're in rural Alabama, but they may not know what trappers are because traps aren't as common as they used to be, And at least in this area. I'm not really familiar with the hunting world. Um, so what I told them was that 
a trapper is someone who sets traps to catch wild animals and game what is game and one of the kids said like deer and I said yes so venison which is deer meat is game it's game meat and that kind of helped them to understand it um they're a hunter who instead of using bows and arrows and guns uses traps to like lure prey in and uh capture them um and then had it been permitted with my time or permitted with my assignment, I could have gone into a predator and prey section of science right there. Um, so we could have done like a food web where it was Lewis and Clark and the core of discovery and deer and what a deer eat, will deer eat plants, well what do plants need to survive, water and sun. And so that could have been a cool um, science integration that I was thinking about doing. But right now I'm only teaching social studies and reading. So that wasn't able to be integrated. Um, the last thing that I was going to do for my assignment was called a parking lot. And my observation teacher actually told me about parking lots and she uses them regularly. So her kids were already familiar with them. Um, the parking lot is done at the very end of the activity or like the very end of the lesson, like right before lunch or right before you switch subjects or whatever. Um, when you're done with social studies, you do a social studies parking lot. Every student gets a sticky note and they all write one question that they still have on that sticky note. And then if you have a whole class, then you can put it in the parking lot section of your wall or on your whiteboard or your dry erase board or whatever you've got. But since I only had five students, I was going to put them on a piece of copy paper. Um, and basically that copy paper said like, or it would have, it said parking lot. Um, but it would have had questions like, why was Sacagawea kidnapped and then sold to, to St. Charbonneau? Um, why did Lewis and Clark not just take a boat the entire way to the Pacific Ocean from St. Louis? Um, and then the lesson opener for the next day is taking those parking lot questions. Every student gets a question that is not their own and then the class tries to answer them as a whole. Um, so why didn't Lewis and Clark take a boat the entire way from St. Louis to um, the Pacific Ocean? Well, because there wasn't a water route all the way from the Pacific Ocean to St. Louis. So they couldn't, they had to walk some of the way. They had to ride horses and do um, covered wagons part of the way. Um, so if we can answer that question, then it gets moved and we can basically throw it away, say we're done with it, we know we now know the answer to it. And if there's a question that we can't answer, like why was Sacagawea kidnapped and sold, then we move that in back into the parking lot to answer at the end of the lesson. And if we can't answer it at the end of the lesson, it goes back in the parking lot to be answered the following day. So basically you go from short-term parking in the airport to long-term parking if your trip gets delayed and if you can't answer the questions. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't get to do that and I didn't get to do my writing activity and I taught my lesson on a Wednesday and in the fifth grade at the school that I'm observing at, Wednesdays are writing Wednesdays, which basically means that my students uh, have to work on either their creative writing skills, their informational writing, the expository, they just have to write and they have an hour dedicated every day to write. And so I was going to take 10 minutes of their hour of my student, my five students hour and have them write in an explorer's journal 
and they were either going to get the journal of Sacagawea, Lewis, or Clark. And there were three or four leading questions per journal, which was basically just a piece of copy paper that I printed the explorer's name, wrote down three or four questions, and then printed lines on so that um, my students could write in a journal and then put it in their interactive notebook to see how they used um, their writing to answer questions. And the fifth grade also uses a method called QASI, which is restate the question, answer the question, um, give supporting details, and then give an insight. So they were going to use QAS um, because their journal should be an insight. And I had talked to them about that before we began. Um, their journal entry should be an insight because they're talking about their own experience. So they're discovering that this plant exists only in this state and they're talking about how, oh, well, our canoe tipped over again. So now all of our food and our clothing are um, completely soaked and my feet hurt so bad because I don't have proper footwear. Um, one of the conversations that I had with my students was, how bad would your feet hurt if you walked all the way across the country? And uh, they were like, not bad at all. I have Nikes, not bad at all. I have Under Armour shoes. And I said, but what if you were barefoot? Or what if you had very bad shoes? And they were like, well, my feet would hurt a lot. And I was like, yeah, well, back in Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea's time, they didn't have Nikes. They didn't have these tennis shoes that we have that are designed to um, support our arches or uh, Dr. Shoals and help uh, support us. So their feet would hurt a lot. And the kids were kind of shocked to learn that they didn't have comfy shoes to wear back then. Um, but that was one of the things that I uh, kind of made them realize how long ago 1803, 1806 was, um, is because they didn't have good shoes. They didn't have cars. They couldn't just take an airplane across the country. They couldn't get from one end of the country to the other with just a plane ticket and some time. They had to bring food and then they ate that food. So once they ate that food, they had to hunt more food. They had to trap more food. So it's a good thing that they had that French trapper along because if they didn't have the trapper along, they might not have trapped any food. And they had 30, uh, after Sacagawea's child was born, they, they had 31 in the Corps of Discoveries. So that's 33 Lewis and Clark, 34 Sacagawea, 35 the trapper, 36 mouths to feed with Sacagawea's baby Pompey. And that's a lot of mouths to feed when you are just trapping food for yourself. So my, my kids kind of had to figure out um, and come to terms with the fact that not everything is as easy as running downtown to the Piggly Wiggly or running to the Quick Stop. Um, and they realized how good they have it in 2020. Um, so that was really cool of them to make those connections. Um, and that's really all I wanted for the lesson. I, really, I was really looking forward to the parking lot and to the Explorer's Journal, but I really just wanted my kids to understand how far we've come since the 1800s and also to understand how far we have yet to go um, and the school that I'm observing at is a growth mindset school like every teacher has something about growth mindset outside their door and they're big on the power of yet and I think I touched on this in a previous episode and if not then I will definitely make one about it but the power of yet is like 
I might go to bed and have done nothing in my day. And I can sleep soundly because I haven't done anything yet. I took care of myself. Did I eat today? Yes. Did I sleep today? Well, I'm about to. Okay, I took care of myself. In the morning, I will handle all of my yets. So I get up. I haven't made my bed yet. That implies that I'm going to do it. And that is really, like, one of the things that I wanted my kids to take away from the lesson is, like, they didn't have good shoes yet. They didn't have transportation yet. They didn't have a route to the Pacific yet. So that was kind of, I used that word a lot during my lesson. Um, I went back and watched my video and counted it and it was a lot. Um, so I really hope that my kids start using the word yet in their day-to-day -day life. Um, not as a push it back excuse, but as a, I don't understand it yet. I don't get it yet because yet really changes the meaning of a sentence. Thanks for tuning in to Turn to Your Teacher and Listen. If you have comments, questions, stories, or recommendations to share, you can email me at ttytalpod at gmail.com. Music by Kilo Kaz. Talk soon. Bye-bye.